welcome to the 393rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Tom Hipper and Esther Chernak for an update on the Omicron variant and public health in the United States. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at USFDisaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 22nd, 2021, there are 810,164 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Cliff Mickelson, Classical music radio host and double bass player dies at 71. This was written by Gary Miles and was published March 24th, 2021 in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Liz Mickelson, age 71 of Trenton, a popular classical music radio host and an accomplished double bass player, died Sunday, March 14th of COVID-19 at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in Hamilton, New Jersey. Mr. Mickelson's wife, oboist Peggy Wiltrout, also died of COVID-19 on February 26, 2021 in New York. Known for his warm voice, conversational explanations of the pieces he aired, and a brilliant personality, Mr. Mickelson had been a part-time host at WRTI-FM 90.1 since 2014. He was also an interviewer for the station's Philadelphia Orchestra in Concert broadcasts and regularly performed on the bass. Nicknamed the Bliss Man, Mr. Mickelson was on the air at WRTI every Monday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and filled in frequently for other hosts. He spent 13 years in the double bass section of the San Antonio Symphony and more recently performed with, among others, the Buffalo Philharmonic, New Jersey Capitol Philharmonic, Staten Island Philharmonic, and Newtown Chamber Orchestra. Respected for his general knowledge of orchestral music and conductors, Mr. Mickelson was proficient as a radio host and interviewer. Sitting in his swivel chair at the studio's microphone and control board, he put nervous on-air guests at ease with his friendly ways and explained sophisticated selections to his listeners in what he called his average guy voice. I learned a great deal from Bliss about the music and composers a listener wrote on WRTI's online tribute, his smooth, calming voice made some of the worst days a little better. Mr. Mickelson was born June 13, 1949, in West Chicago, Illinois. He started playing double bass in eighth grade and got a bachelor's degree in music and performance at the Chicago Musical College at Roosevelt University in 1971. He kicked off his radio career at Trinity University's KRTU-FM in San Antonio, in 1981, as a summer replacement announcer and went on to work at KPAC-FM in San Antonio, its all-classical station, he became an announcer and producer at Buffalo's WNED-FM in 1987 and appeared on camera for its PBS-TV affiliate. 
who was the production manager at WWFM in West Windsor, New Jersey from 1992 to 2011 before going to WRTI in 2014. And he played with the San Antonio Symphony from 1974 to 1987. Mr. Mickelson married singer Linda Diane Moore in 1976. They divorced and he married Peggy Wiltrout in 2013. They played music together often around the region and were favorites at the Most Arts Festival in Alfred, New York. He liked to tell the story of how they met at the New Jersey Shore at a rehearsal with the Orchestra of St. Peter by the Sea. He told a friend he saw her and thought, that's an interesting looking lady. After they married, she would see him off in the mornings when he left home for the radio station and he would phone her to say he had arrived safely. Bliss was the kindest, sweetest, most generous colleague I have ever worked with, said Deborah Lou Harder, a classical host and producer of WRTI's Saturday Morning Classical Coffee House. Mr. Mickelson and his wife, oboist Peggy Wiltrout, often played together with ensembles around the region. Off the clock, Mr. Mickelson liked to tend sheep and other animals near Hightown, New Jersey, Heightstown, New Jersey. He watched videos of historic trains, doted on his cat, Janet, and liked Texas grapefruit and Tate's cookies. He also did voiceover work. Listeners wrote hundreds of tributes to Mr. Mickelson on Facebook. One wrote that he was like a friend greeting us through the radio. There was something about his voice that just got me excited for every piece that he announced, a listener wrote on the WRTI tribute. With a name like Bliss, what else would you expect? I will miss his gentle voice in another, in a world awash with so much complacency. Excuse me. I will miss his gentle voice in a world awash with so much cacophony, another person wrote. Mr. Mickelson is survived by a niece, a nephew, and other relatives. His former wife died in 2015. Okay, let me introduce my guests for today. Both are returning to COVID calls. Tom Hipper is back for the second time. Tom is the Associate Director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health, where he recently managed a CDC-funded grant project designed to address the disaster information needs of children with special health care needs. He's assistant teaching faculty at Drexel University, where he teaches courses in crisis and risk communication and Mr. Hipper is also a fellow of the Center for Risk Communication. My second guest, uh, no stranger to COVID calls, and great to have her back, is Dr. Esther Chernak. Esther is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health at Drexel University's School of Public Health. She also holds a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication. And prior to joining the Drexel faculty in 2010, she worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. She is a regular contributor and a former host of COVID Calls. Esther Chernak and Tom Hipper, great to see you both. Likewise. Happy to be great here. Great to be back. Thanks. So, so much has been happening um, with the pandemic. And I just sometimes I'm like, I really don't understand what's going on. And that's when I pull out the digital Rolodex and send the email to Esther and Tom to you as well this time. So thank you both for coming on on, on short notice. And I just want to try to make sense of what I'm seeing in the news right now. And I, I want to start with Omicron. So um, Tom, let me start with you. And I guess I just want to start with a basic question. What is a virus variant? Why, why did we get 
Delta, and now why do I have to worry about Omicron? Yeah, well, Scott, first of all, you're not alone um, in terms of the disaster Rolodex. When I have questions, I too seek out Esther. Uh, I, I know my my parents are now frequent listeners to your podcast, and I think they were in light of the Omicron news. Um, while I like to think they get some information from me, I think they were uh, excited to hear that Esther was back. She's been filling them in throughout this. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, you know, Omicron is um, as we are now being bombarded with the the latest uh, variant of SARS-CoV-2 that that we're dealing with, and and you know this is the latest version of of what uh, many of us in public health have been um, you know sounding the potential alarms about uh, you know for the for almost the past two years. This is this is why we've been stressing the importance of getting vaccinated because um, when folks are, you know, not vaccinated, um, we we see the potential for variants like this one to emerge. And unfortunately, um, you know, we we saw this initially detected in, in South Africa. Um, and we have now we're seeing it, you know, um, throughout the world, various countries, uh, we've, and we've seen this, if you've been kind of paying attention to case counts, seeing this almost vertical line in a lot of the places where um, it's being detected. And so one of the, you know, we're still very much learning a lot about Omicron in terms of its virulence, um, but we it's, it's pretty evident thus far that um, this is an incredibly contagious uh, version of SARS-CoV-2. And so the one of the major concerns here is is what that surge in case count could mean for our already strained uh, healthcare systems and and so you know and that's I think what has us you know most concerned at this point. Um, I'll I'll turn to uh, Esther, the the true expert on this front, to to build off that. Well, but I mean, you did great. That's exactly what I would have said. Um, you know, this novel variant that at least was first recognized in South Africa, not clear completely where, from where it emerged, because it was also, I think, detected in Hong Kong and Denmark. Um, it's highly contagious, doubling time, two days, maybe three days, seems to be shed. She seems to have a shorter incubation period, faster onset of symptoms after exposure. Um, and what we don't know is, the severity of this new variant, does it cause less severe disease? There is a suggestion that it does, um, but we also need to recognize that it's also infecting people who have had prior infection, many of whom have had prior Delta variant infections. And so clearly there's some immune evasion with this variant, and it's also infecting people who've received two doses of, of effective vaccines. So there's clearly some immune evasion with this variant. We don't know whether the less severe picture of clinical illness is, relates to the fact that there's partial immunity in some hosts, or maybe it's a less virulent virus, a lot still to be understood. But the sheer number of cases that people that we're seeing across the across the globe, really, as, as Omicron progresses everywhere, uh, is frightening, because undoubtedly, the, there will be a percentage, a small percentage, but a percentage of cases with severe complications. And if you have so many more, so many cases, even a small percentage will end up resulting in a pretty significant hit on the healthcare system in terms of impact. And that's, I think, the biggest concern. We're, I think we're still learning as we go, honestly. I think, I, I feel like in the U.S., we've probably had an Omicron 
uh, surge for at least a week or two before we recognized it. Mm-hmm. You know, you were, the reporting now is that Omicron seems to be replacing, um, you know, Delta or at least exceeding Delta. I think there's still very much a Delta transmission in this country. That's still happening. That hasn't gone away. Um, but we're seeing now tons of, of Omicron. I suspect it probably started circulating at least a few weeks ago. So, Esther, let me just stay with you for a second. Is this something that you would have expected from the beginning that we have this sort of, you know, I guess I've even heard the term the sort of like wild COVID, the original COVID, and then and then Delta and then Omicron. I mean, this kind of succession from one variant to another, is that what you would have predicted? I think the whole um, development and progression of variants is something that we all thought was theoretically possible. I don't, and, and so, but I'm not sure how well prepared we were for how quickly we were going to start seeing them and how different they have been. You know, I mean, we had this sort of ancestral strain, the Wuhan version, then we had uh, the beta or, you know, variant, and then mm-hmm. pretty quickly, um, you know, we had this Delta variant emerge from, you know, India last summer. And, you know, I think, I think we're kind of learning as we go in terms of how quickly these variants emerge and how efficiently they become transmitted. So I think, you know, arguably virologists are not surprised that variants emerge, but I think it's virtually impossible to predict what they're going to look like, what kind of disease they're going to produce, how transmissible they'll be, when they'll occur, et cetera. I mean, I think, you know, the, the high level view is that as long as we have rapid transmission in, in parts of the world where we have very little immunity, we're going to see, we're going to be surprised every couple of months with a new variant. We can expect that to happen. But the characteristics of those variants are very hard to predict. So the public health messaging around this, it must be enormously challenging because as you're saying, there's a lot that's not known right now. Um, in, in terms of how much, if you, for example, if you already had, let's say you had Delta variant, you suffered from it and you, you got better. Does that give you some immunity in some way to Omicron? People had two vaccine doses. Um, and they're now being, if they haven't had their booster yet, will the booster protect them against Omicron? But the booster is supposed to protect me against Delta. I mean, these are just two of about a hundred different questions that I've heard people articulate. Um, Tom, let me bring that to you, where do you begin with the messaging on this? I don't, I don't even want to get to people who are vaccine hesitant yet. Let's just start with somebody like me who's like, please, I'll take anything that you tell me I should take to avoid this. How are you speaking to people like me? Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. This is, this is one of the challenges of this ever-changing context that we find ourselves in. And, you know, it's, we, you have to be nimble with the messaging. I, I think one of the key things, though, is to to make sure you're getting the the core messaging correct. And and what I mean by that is I think one of the things we've struggled with to date is, you know, we've been blessed with these incredibly safe and effective vaccines. Uh, and it's it's pretty astounding to think, you know, how effective they've been, how quickly they were developed. I mean, really unprecedented stuff. And I think we were in public health, we were very quick to, um, you know, shout over and over again that these are safe and effective, completely understandable and and correct. Um, but what we meant by effectiveness, I think, has has gotten a bit mushy and has has I think created um, unreasonable expectations and confusion. 
the primary pur- purpose of these vaccines, whether we're talking about you know the the initial two doses of mRNA or the boosters now, has been to limit severe disease in in individuals who get COVID, and they have um, they have done a remarkably good job at that, limiting hospitalization, limiting death. Um, I think some of the the wishy-washiness of the messaging led people to this false sense that you know if you if you listened and got your two doses you were good to go and life could kind of return to normal and so that effectiveness didn't just mean protection from severe disease but that you were no longer susceptible to it and and that's that's not the case these vaccines absolutely do help uh, in terms of limiting spread and reducing the likelihood that you'll get it. But that primary effectiveness is reducing severe disease. Um, the, the good news is that, you know, now that we're kind of in this this booster phase, um, everything that I have seen and, and Esther, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, it, it we, we are seeing that um, the boosters make a significant difference here. Some of that waning immunity we were seeing with the initial two doses, both with respect to Delta and in particular now with Omicron, um, the boosters are, are showing um, that, you know, we're now kind of returning to that same level of effectiveness, if not even a bit higher than we saw from those initial two doses. So, so the, the take home message is the booster works and it's really important to, to get it. Um, and though it won't completely protect you um, from ultimately getting COVID, it can help and it will absolutely help with in terms of reducing the severity of your health outcome. So I think we, you know, we, we have to continue stressing that. And I think we have to empathize with people that it's, it's frustrating that, um, you know, this keeps changing. And, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's, 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 difficult to do because we sense people's frustrations with changing information. We know that everybody is so over this and just wants to be done. Um, and, uh, but I think it's, it's really critical that, you know, we, we continue to, people should want our recommendations to evolve with the, with the data. And I think the, the booster is a, a great example of that. Esther, that booster vaccination rate in the United States to me is, is really too low. And I say that as a person with no medical basis to say that, but it's just scary to me and a little surprising, honestly, um, you know, to, to see the national vaccination rate. The last time I looked, it was approaching a 70 percent. It's it's wildly different, of course, across the United States, but um, probably pretty high there in Pennsylvania, probably quite high in Philadelphia, I would imagine. But the booster rate below 50 percent in some places, like 20, 30 mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. How do you account for that? I honestly don't know. I haven't seen specific research around booster hesitancy as a, apart from vaccine hesitancy overall. I'll be curious to see if Tom's aware of data around that. I mean, you know, my sense is that um, people are busy. It's actually hard to get, it's not easy to get the vaccine at the moment, or at least it hasn't been, you know, Omicron has changed the booster um desirability a little bit. I mean, we, you know, I think at one point, you know, just until a couple of weeks ago, it was a recommendation. I think Omicron has fueled a lot of interest in the booster and it's actually hard to get a booster vaccine right now in the U.S. Uh, I mean, not that hard, it's all relative, but you might have to wait a week or a week and a half to get an appointment, say at a pharmacy or someplace like that. Um, 
you know, I, I'm not, I don't know what all the components are of the hesitancy around the booster. I think, you know, there's some vaccine hesitancy that where somehow people who decided to get the first two shots aren't as convinced that the booster is necessary, don't quite understand the rationale, maybe had side effects from the first dose or two and don't want to experience them with a third shot. Um, maybe we haven't made the argument sufficiently to explain why it's necessary. Um, I'm not sure what the factors are, but it is challenging. It's extremely challenging. And I think to be fair, there are some pretty experienced, legitimate scientific voices out there that are not as gung-ho about boosters as you might think. I mean, Paul Offit, I think, is a notable example of a, mm. a very smart vaccine expert who thinks this, you know, there's a compelling argument to be made not for pushing boosters at this point, because in fact, the current primary se sequence of the vaccine it protects against severe illness, hospitalization, and death, you know, reasonably well, and that's our goal. Um, you know, so so, and I think that I think probably people hear that as well, and that might be a reason why there's a little less uh, interest in the booster. I think we're starting to see institutions move to booster mandates, third shot mm -hmm. mandates, and I think we'll see an increase in people wanting to get the booster. Um, with that. But I can tell you, you know, I was a part of planning some big high, through, high throughput vaccine clinics at Drexel University about three weeks ago, um, late, you know, at the end of things, right after Thanksgiving, before mm -hmm. Christmas. And our rationale for creating those clinical opportunities was before Omicron. Um, we thought we, you know, we reasoned that we still were living in a time where um, Delta was, was being transmitted pretty widely. People were going to go home to, for Christmas holidays, have unmasked encounters with family members, get sick, come back to campus. We have a very early start, as you recall, January 3rd, living in, in dorms, um, and, you know, begin potentially cycles of transmission on campus. And we thought, you know, we should really you know, offer booster opportunities before that can happen. And we started setting up these clinics. And then as we started setting them up, the news broke around Omicron and we were packed. Okay. You know, we just immunized in three or four sessions, at least 3000 people, maybe more. Um, we had one day where we immunized at least a thousand people. So the interest in the booster just related to Omicron in the last literally 10 days has really, has really surged. So we'll, we'll have to see. Um, I think we need to do a better job telling the story of booster effectiveness a little bit. Um, but to be fair, I think, you know, I think the current primary series protects people reasonably well against the most severe consequences, and that may be part of the hesitation. Let me just remind folks real quickly that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with a, getting a public health update from Esther Chernak and Tom Hipper, both of whom were at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And um, just to come back to, Tom, something you said um, about one of the concerns here, this Omicron wave, is, is about people being sick, of course, but it's also about the, the health system and the health system's ability to absorb um, this spike in cases. What are you worried about, Tom? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried first of all for our 
frontline healthcare workers. Um, they are uh, around the country. They are completely and understandably burnt out. Um, and our healthcare resources, both the capacity of our hospitals and, and our personnel are finite resources. And, you know, as we've seen throughout the past two years, COVID's not hitting the country in a uniform way. It, it kind of ebbs and flows in different places. And, and right now we're, you know, seeing many examples across the country, including the Midwest, where, um, even before this, Omicron surge, um, just, you know, in terms of Delta, we were seeing healthcare systems who were, um, you know, short on ICU beds and seeing lots of, of, you know, cases. And there's just not a lot of um, a give in that system to accommodate, uh, the, you know, the potential for this new variant and the surge that comes with that. So I think, you know, again, as Esther said, even if there are, I, I, it's certain. There's certainly not definitive evidence yet. There's, there's some, um, some of the data points to the fact that that hopefully, fingers crossed, Omicron is not as severe. I, I don't think we we can say that uh, with certainty yet. But you know, there are some, there there is some real world data emerging that that um, you could you could make that case. And I think it's it's certainly possible. And I think we'll know more. Um, each each day now seems to bring uh, a little bit more clarity on that front. But, you know, even if it is um, less virulent than what we saw with Delta, even significantly so, um, there is a point at which such a high surge in, in case count um, is, is going to mean that it's a numbers game and there are still folks go, who need uh, to seek care. And, and the question is, are, are we going to have the capacity for that? So I think that's a I think that's a really legitimate concern at this point. And I, you know, I can't stress enough. I have, um, you know, healthcare providers in, in my family. Um, I, I speak with a number of them on a regular basis and they are completely burnt out and taxed by this. And the prospect of another, yet another wave, um, is, is really, it's tough to imagine at this point. Well, thanks for explaining that and, and, um, best of luck and solidarity to your family members and what they've been doing to keep everybody safe. Uh, you know, it has these ripple effects as we've learned as well. It's, so it's, you know, the hospital gets full again. And so then people who injure themselves or are ill in the normal, you know, carrying on of life, um, they now are waiting in the, in the ER or they don't go to the hospital and then there's surgeries and other elective procedures that get pushed off the calendar. So it has these sort of snowball effects. Esther, you and I have talked about fatigue um, among healthcare workers and in public health um, throughout this pandemic, going back to the beginning. And we're going, we're going to kind of round into year three of this pandemic. So now it's structural. I mean, in terms of is the budget what it should be for the public health department is the, um, is the um, labor force what it needs to be in nursing and in public health uh, and for physicians? Your thoughts on, on that? I mean, this is no longer something we can treat as an emergency event. This is a structural mm -hmm. part of our life in healthcare now. Right, right. So I agree with you. I think it's really a challenge. And, and you know, I kind of had an epiphany recently just in the last week or so where I kind of realized that I think I, I – I'm my, you know, I would, if you would ask me a year and a half ago, what I hoped would emerge from this pandemic would be this recognition about the critical value that public health agencies provide 
to the, you know, to keep people well and healthy, uh, certainly during crises, but maybe even outside of crises. And, and maybe even another recognition that we need some kind of universal approach to healthcare in this country. And I'm honestly not sure, nearly two years into this, that we're close to those recognitions at all. In fact, if anything, I think in this country, we have people hold public health agencies in disdain. We have people fleeing the world of healthcare for sure. And I think there are, I mean, you, you know, so there are horrific stories and maybe they're just anecdotes and not really common events, but people, you know, anti-vaxxers and people who, you know, have swallowed a lot of misinformation about COVID um, in parts of the country, you know, um, angry at the healthcare system. Um, when their loved ones become hospitalized, people denying that they have COVID, um, you know, people really lashing out at the healthcare system. And we've especially seen that in the public health system. Um, we have, you know, elected officials not supporting their appointed public health officials. We have uh, elected officials in government undermining uh, the legal powers of public health and not supporting public health. And it's more than funding. I think there's some profound structural problems we have in this country in our public health system. We have 50 public health systems. Each state has its own public health system. We have a CDC that's really a relatively academic organization almost at this point and uh, has been, I think we've seen less than effective in terms of coordinating a national response. Um, and we have a healthcare system that is is completely separate from the public health system. You know, people are complaining about data and problems with data as if it's a coding problem, but it's really not. We have a healthcare systems that have their own record keeping systems and interoper we have no interoperability when it comes to electronic health records. And so as a result, we have no easy transfer of data from healthcare to, to the 50 states, their in their respective public health databases, much less the national database. So the, the problems are so profound and systemic. It's more than just money. It's, it's going to require some really out of the box thinking, at least for this country, in terms of the way both public health and healthcare are organized. And it's not at all clear to me that there's an appetite to do that or a recognition that it's necessary. I think people are just angry in some broad way. So I, I was feeling a little bit of despair in the last week or so when I kind of realized this is bad. You know, the, you know, the lights have not gone off in this country in terms of illuminating what the problem is. Um, I did, we can't have Esther Chernak in despair. That's not good. <laughs> uh, I don't know how we're going to meet that, but I'm, I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's really, to me, a really powerful insight. And it resonates with a lot of what we're learning about disasters more generally is that you sort of expect that a disaster will focus everybody's attention. Policymakers will rally. And I think we have examples of that historically where you could say, well, that kind of what that looked like. But you're describing something that over a passage of time, not only do we not get that, we get the opposite of that. People attacking the structure, they're attacking the experts, and then undermining what the experts are saying. Um, it doesn't, Tom, seem to jive, at least for me, with the kind of um, picture of a world that I had coming into this pandemic. I mean, conspiracy thinking, that misinformation, disinformation, that's always been out there. But it's mainstreamed now. And, I, and I've gotten to the point where I can't quite tell where sort of like misinformation and disinformation leaves off and, and, then, be, and then veers over into people who are just don't want to wear a mask. And, and it's a spectrum. You know, it's hard to know 
you know, which people in that in that sort of overall ecosystem of mistrusting expertise are doing it just because they don't they're worn down, they don't know what to do, they're trying just as you and I were talking a minute ago, they just want to try to do the right thing versus those people who are weaponizing this and getting rich, some of them, right. off of undermining these systems that are saving people's lives. That's a lot to take on, but I'm just sort of curious like how you're how you're viewing that at this time. Yeah, well we've clearly reached the uh Esther and Tom Vent session. It's uh, <laughs> fine. We'll make we'll carve this which out is, as a special segment where you can just yeah. go ahead and yeah. Well, I, I mean, first of all, Esther's absolutely right. Uh, I think you know one major takeaway from this is you know our our public health infrastructure needs to be better invested in, and you know whether that happens is a story for another day. You you would hope that uh, a two year and counting. Uh, pandemic of this magnitude would be enough of a wake up call on that front. But, you know, <laughs> we've, I've been fooled before into, into thinking that, but, you know, we, we need to invest in, in critical things like public health surveillance. Esther mentioned before when we were talking about the emergence of Omicron that, you know, South Africa detected that and, and frankly paid the, the toll of, of um, doing us the favor of detecting it and letting the world know to, to you know, to in that that tip as typically happens resulted in travel bans that that you know punished the messenger as it were. But South Africa has invested heavily in surveillance systems to to detect um, viruses like this, and that's and that system tipped us off that uh, this new variant was was coming about. I am struck by. Um, as the wealthiest nation in the world with all the wonderful health, medical, public health expertise we have in this country, how reliant we are on other countries' data uh, to make sense of this ever-changing virus. Um, as Esther pointed out, we have this sort of disjointed system where that makes it very difficult to systematically collect the latest information that can then drive good decision-making. And that filters into clearer messaging. You can't have that if you don't have a good sense of what's going on. You can't make informed decisions. When a new variant occurs, um, the U.S. should be, in addition to you know being able to quickly detect that, we need to be able to do things like stratify cases by age and vaccination status. We should be better better able to track things like long COVID, for example. These These are critical questions that need to be answered and quickly so it can inform our whole response. So, you know, I don't think there's any question that um, that that needs to be addressed. I, I think, you know, the the misinformation, disinformation piece is, is without question. This is another structural level problem that we need to start thinking more systematically about. And we need a lot more, um, you know, attention paid and evidence based research to help us try to combat some of those things. And we have some of those efforts underway. But. This is this is clearly a, one of the key problems of our day and is going to continue to be a problem beyond this pandemic. But I think one of the frustrating things for me is, you know, solving misinformation, disinformation overnight is is it's an extremely difficult problem to solve. And, and I wouldn't expect any one administration or or um, country to to have all the answers to that. I think where I get particularly frustrated is when um we when we can't enable the folks who are who are taking this seriously and 
want to do the right thing and want the latest accurate information and are going to credible sources of information, when those folks are confused or when they're unable to act accordingly, that's when it, it it's it's hard not to look at what we're doing as as a failure to some degree. And I think the latest example of that for me is is testing. Um, here we are nearly two years into this pandemic, approaching the holiday season. And I, I mean, I should be tripping over of it, free available tests in every store I go into. And th this is a classic case where I don't care how good your messaging is, you know, how we could be saying crystal clearly all the time, you know, before you get together with someone outside your household, you know, do the rapid test. If people can't obtain that test, they can't do what we're asking of them. Um, and why two years in, I, I'm, I'm, my sister called me this morning because the, the Philly Department of Health, to their credit, was trying to, um, you know, increase access to free and available testing. So they've been, they've selected sites all over the city to give out these tests. She went to one of those sites early this morning and got there about 10 minutes after it opened and there was a line wrapped around the building as far as the eye could see you go to any cvs and walgreens in the city right now and they're sold out we're a few days out from christmas here and you have you have lots of people who are boosted um and want to do everything they can to keep their family safe and they can't and and you know that i i love i'm going on a rant here but i i i'm a big fan of this administration's press secretary, but a few weeks ago, uh, she kind of snarkily posed this notion that, you know, what, do you want us to send free tests to every house in America? You know, and I felt like everybody I know, everybody <laughs> in public health was like, um, yes, please. Yeah. Yes. Let's do that. Let's meet, let's meet this moment, this legitimate yeah. crisis. And, and let's, let's treat it as such and take measures like that, that support the, the things we're trying to tell people to do. And I think that that's such a critical thing. Everyone wants to poke at the, the confusing messaging, but clear messaging is important, but you need to couple that with give people the tools that we have so that they can do what we need them to do. And that's not always been happening. And I think those are problems that at this stage in the game, I feel like we, we should have been able to solve and before we even get into the misinformation piece. I had an experience this week that um, really is resonant of this. So I live in South Korea and, um, you know, my youngest son is uh, in a elementary school here and we get text message late one night saying there had been a case and not in his class, but in a class that's on the same floor, shares a bathroom, every kid. So this is within the school. They had already said, these are the classes that need to get tested. We want you to get tested by 10 a.m. tomorrow. And um, so he, we have a municipal testing site here, got a test. And by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we knew his status. And then the school had then received all of that data by the afternoon. And then by that night, they were able to tell us that he could go back to school the next day. So, and it happened without protests. It happened. It was just like these are structures that have been working here in Korea for two years now. And it was pretty routine. And what it enabled was, and it's kind of hitting these notes, Tom, that you were just saying. It's like the test was available. We knew where to go to get the test. There was waiting involved. 
some waiting, but there it was. There wasn't a question like, would you get tested or not? It's just a matter of here it is. And then you get a text message from the city saying, okay, negative test result. And then that's transmitted to the school. And then, and then there you go. Esther, I don't know. I, I'm describing a world that's pretty foreign from the United States, but it shouldn't be that foreign. Um, these are, you know, that kind of a system that I just described. Yeah, it costs some money. It takes some time ramping people up to know to trust it and know how to use it, but it's no more complicated than any of the other many, many complicated things that people do every day when they interact with government to make their life safe and healthy. Yeah, this isn't rocket science. I mean, it's basic contact identification, tracing, and testing. And, you know, every local public health department, state health department, can and should be able to do that. It's about resources in many respects. But, you know, it's also about the public understanding that that's the job of public health and paying for it. You know, when I, you know, first joined the health department in Philadelphia in the early 90s, one of my mentors at the time pulled me aside and said, we are really resource strapped here. And that, you know, the government here in Philadelphia pays for the S's, you know, streets, schools, and safety. So police, fire, streets department, and uh, the school district. And they don't see public health as a service that, you know, taxed, that merits tax dollars. And so you have, the, it's, it's more than just we need to pay for public health. It's really ha coming to grips with who should pay for public health. And one of the biggest concerns that I think a lot of people right now working in public health in this country have is they're getting tons of federal dollars, which happens a lot during crises. And, you know, the question is, is that going to be a sustained commitment? Is there really going to be a true investment in infrastructure? Are we going to have local public health departments in our future dependent on federal grants, federal dollars? Or there needs to be some kind of commensurate commitment, perhaps from local and state governments, which are also cash, you know, cash strapped. And so there has to be some kind of reckoning. We want these services. This is what they can look like. And I think, you know, I've read recently New York City's public health apparatus has done a great job with contact identification and tracing and supporting contacts, uh, maybe with a variation of what you've described. But I think people have felt like the public health system there has worked very, very well. It, it's just so spotty. I mean, because the public health capacity across this country is so variable. Well, New York's always had a flagship health department, but that's achievable. You know, we need to have, you know, clear standards and clear, reliable funding streams. And, you know, we have to have a conversation in this country. You know, local and state dollars stopped funding public health a while ago. And the solution has been to throw federal dollars at it on a, you know, case by case basis, outbreak by outbreak basis, uh, basis. And we need to have a much more, you know, systematic and sustained approach to supporting this service. And I think doing a better job of just sort of th fixing the kind of, um, you know, local state disconnects and the healthcare public health disconnects. I mean, th that's a big one. And, you know, you'd think that there'd be overwhelming support for the ACA. It's not completely clear to me that people understand what universal health care means. And that's shocking in this country 24 months into a pandemic that, you know, that this wasn't eye-opening for folks. Esther, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the New York City case because I, I saw this great thread on Twitter the other day of, of it was it was a nice change of pace from the the doom scrolling I usually do in that it was it was someone in New York who was actually talking about her experience with the city's test and trace core 
the, the group that provides those services you were just talking about. And I think that's a wonderful example of telling that story a bit more so that people understand what things could be like if things were properly funded. You know, we, we've, we've talked about COVID sort of become, you keep hearing the phrase, the pandemic of the unvaccinated. And it, so much of our focus has made this out to be some sort of, you know, like individual responsibility. And yes, we can all take certain actions that are, are, that matter and protect ourselves and protect those around us, of course. But this is, this is, um, exhibit A of, of, you know, a global pandemic is a, it's a public health community level problem, societal level problem. It's not just about individual responsibility. And, and this, this story of, of this person's experience with a really, a, a well, relatively well funded and functional test and trace program, things like, you know, when you find out you, um, tested positive. You get a, uh, a care package. There's options for grocery delivery or a free hotel stay so that you can isolate from your family if you live in a small one bedroom apartment in New York. Social service assistance, um, for things like domestic violence or mental health, pet care, support for paying for your utilities, connection to a doctor if your symptoms worsen. These are things that the, the onus can't be on the individual to just listen to a message and and do everything by the book and just isolate from society while you while you you know while covid works its way through you these are the kinds of things that good public health can do and that work in slowing and eventually stopping a pandemic and we need to be able to do these things and again we often can't um, this is New York City we're talking about and whenever we point to New York City as a good example you know people roll their eyes because they're they're a unique beast in the public health world. They're they're so much larger and and better funded than so many other programs. But again, as Esther said, this isn't rocket science. If we we know how to do these things, and if we fund them properly, um, these are the kinds of tools that get us out of situations like this. Maybe even prevent us. From getting, yeah. You know, I mean, a what pandemic a is pretty hard to prevent, but still, yeah. I mean, we don't realize what we don't have. I think that just hearing both of you talk about this, I mean, it brings to mind just this word infrastructure again, and that when an infrastructure is built and you rely on it, then I mean, it has a powerful sort of psychological impact in in lots of ways because you don't notice it, but then you notice it when it's breaking down or when it when it has its absence, and so it's also a way that you help to build political coalition around something like public health. I think. If something is there and people know that it works and they're used to it, and then it stops working, that's a moment in which people say, well, wait a minute, why did this? Why are you denying me this bridge that I drive across every day? Why is the electric grid down? You know, the, the rage that people in Texas, my home state, felt when the electric grid failed during the um, ice storm, that's a level of community action and rage I had not seen among Texans who tend to think of themselves as very individualistic, but the, the grid broke down. How can that happen? I just don't see how our discussion around track, test, and trace should be any different from the electric grid going down. It should just be an infrastructure. It's there. We, we don't usually even think about it. And then it comes into play. And I guess it is happening sort of every day at a low level. But then it becomes an issue of, you know, now this federal money is in. And let's We can scale it up when the disaster happens. But the, the infrastructural pieces of it, Esther, 
you can't build those. I don't, I guess you can maybe with enough money, but I don't see how you can build those in the moment. I think they have to be there for the next disaster. Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever, whenever public health has an infusion of funding, it's always interesting because, you know, for the decades that I worked for local public health doing this kind of work, we always hired people. You know, huge amounts of money would go to police and fire and they would buy equipment and buy HVAC systems and Tyvek suits and fire boats and helicopters. And we would just hire people and, you know, just to populate our, our departments and to do this work. And it's very difficult to do that in a crisis and the numbers that you need. And, you know, there's a lot of attention now on the public health workforce and, you know, ensuring that we have a workforce that has the skill set that can, that can do this work. It's hard. People have done it. You know, there are people are being are hired are being hired. They're going from, you know, departments of five to departments of 50. Is that enough? Probably not. Um, you know, there has been some surge of lab capacity, at least with sequencing, but that's still a huge gap. It's challenging. It's very challenging to to fix these problems overnight. I think the other issue is ensuring that the changes that are made are ones that the public likes and wants to see more of. I think public health has gotten some really um, bad attention and and um, and condemnation because people associate public health action with closing schools, restricting personal liberties. Right. They don't want that. And right. so we have to come up with a better way of demonstrating to the public that this work is helpful and doesn't ruin your life, but in fact enhances it, you know. Um, and, you know, there's a, I think there are new approaches. I mean, you know, to schools, schools, I think, have been a much bigger issue than we ever realized they would be. I think locking schools down for the last year has been disastrous. And I think a more aggressive approach to, you know, test and stay in school as opposed to stay out of school and then test and then reopen schools, we'll do a, we'll do a better job with that. Limiting disease will we'll make things better. But I think that's been our biggest challenge is, is showing people that the work of public health is valuable. I'm not sure they see it that way right now, which is a huge disappointment to me at any rate. We're almost up on time. I just uh, to remind folks of listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Tom Hipper and Esther Schernack. And um, maybe just a sort of last question for you as we round into the into the new year, Tom, you mentioned you're doom scrolling. I'm right there with you. Um, but when you're doom scrolling, you are looking for information um, and probably affirmation that you're keeping it together. I, that's why I doom scroll. I'm like, am I, am I losing it? No. Okay. There's other people who are looking at this and seeing the same world I am. Um, so what is the information that you're looking for as we round into the next phase of this pandemic, Tom? I mean, what are the data points that you're trying to collect? What are you scanning on the horizon as we're thinking? I mean, we talked about Omicron and I know you're looking for how that's going to play out in the next few weeks. What else? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, all eyes are on Omicron right now. And I think we're we're all sort of, you know, collectively hoping for the best here. Um, but I mean, that's certainly where my my attention is focused. I think, you know, I've been having some <laughs> I've been in light of the Omicron news and, the, you know, the potential for a huge surge in cases. I've been having a lot of conversations with uh, folks in my network who you know have have looked to me for updates throughout this whole pandemic and i think i think my my message to them is that you know this is this is definitely um it's concerning it's why we need to be you know doing everything within our power getting vaccinated getting boosted 
um, ideally, if you can get your hands on on a rapid test, you know, utilizing those as close as possible to when you're getting together with friends and family, upgrading your masks. Um, I think that's something I haven't been hearing enough of. I think at least for right now with this, you know, this pending surge that we expect to see, I think that the days of of the cloth masks should be retired. And, you know, um, uh, there's a, a happy to, to share some some resources in terms of where to get a, a good uh, KN95 mask, for example. But I think upgrading your mask is another thing that, that folks should be, you know, focused on right now. But I, I would I've been couching all of that advice and the need to kind of hunker down in the short term with, you know, with with the reminder that, um, you know, we have to see how this plays out. Um, but that, you know, this doesn't this latest variant doesn't mean that COVID necessarily is going to be this never ending wave of of bad variants um, that we, you know, I think everybody is is feeling the burnout from this and everybody was looking forward to getting vaccinated and being able to enjoy their their holidays and see their loved ones. Um, and that is still theoretically possible. But I think people, this is a good time to, you know, to, to do everything you can to to limit that risk and just continue to, to, to follow the sources of information that, that you've been looking to, to, you know, to get the latest on that. But I think we've, we've seen enough here that this is, this is definitely the time to um, get the booster if you haven't, uh, get tested if you can, upgrade those masks. And if your gut is telling you that whatever you had planned, you know, feels a bit risky, um, follow that and continue to, you know, to protect yourself and those, those folks around you. But don't, you know, don't, um, don't give up on the fact that if, you know, if we, if we kind of weather the storm here, uh, I, I think there's there's reason for some optimism for 2022 that this won't be just a, a never ending hellscape. But part of it is based on the actions that we take. Esther, let me give you the, the last word on that. It's a very clear um, set of points. It actually made me feel a bit better there. Thank you, Tom. Um, Esther, why don't you take us out? What are you scanning on the horizon right now? You know, I think 2022 might be the beginning of uh, reaching some kind of equilibrium with this with this virus you know i'm very interested to see what lessons we learn about the biology of all these variants in our immune system but you know be curious to see what happens just in the next few months with omicron you know does it tear through the population and but allow us to achieve some you know it you know degree of immunity so that we can start to you know not bear such an incredible disease burden in terms of morbidity and mortality with with repeated infections is omicron in fact the beginning of of uh, variants that are in fact maybe less virulent and so we achieve some degree of equilibrium from the perspective of just less severe illness not just because of population immunity but maybe these high transmissible strains that are just much more like our you know garden variety human coronaviruses that cause nuisance colds, but we learn to live with that. I do. Th I agree with Tom. I think 2022 is a decisive year in this pandemic. And I'm hoping that, you know, it becomes a year where we start to achieve this equilibrium so that we're, we can move out of crisis mode and more into dealing with endemic infections and, you know, protecting the most vulnerable among us, uh, optimizing our vaccines. I mean, one of the things about boosters, you know, that people like Mike Osterholm are saying is we should think of this as three doses, as the third dose. And maybe that third dose is the charm. You know, maybe that third mm -hmm. dose achieves a level of 
uh, immunity with respect to both B and T cell responses that really are enduring um, for, for a variety of exposures that might, you know, come our way. So I think we'll start to see a way out of this, I'm hoping, um, in the next 12 months with a combination of, you know, more population immunity, maybe less virulent strains, uh, but more just sort of protection from the perspective of both vaccination and natural in- and natural infections, um, conferring immunity that allows us to kind of return to some degree of normalcy. We'll see. Just remind everyone, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my return guests, Tom Hipper and Esther Chernak, for kind of talking me down a little bit today, um, and especially this last five minutes to hear you using words or phrases like escaping the hellscape, Tom, thanks for that, uh, or uh, reaching some equilibrium, Esther. Um, and as always, you know, when I talk to you both, I, I, I come away with a profound respect for the challenges of communicating about science while science is unfolding. And so hats off. Uh, to you both and what you do. It's great to see you both too. Likewise. Thank you. Same here. Thanks, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.